speaking. We, uh, we've been going through uh, this Advent season, and um, we've been looking at the different themes kind of whimsically of Advent, and um, so glad that you are with us this morning. My name is Mike. I want to welcome you. Thrilled that you are here. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis. We're going to talk about joy today. And before we get, dive in, we're going to go to Genesis 12, shocking, and we're going to go, uh, we're going to go through a number of scriptures. But before we go, uh, I, want, I want you to, uh, to say hello to somebody. This is Barry Corey. He's over here somewhere. Barry, stand up for a second. He's, very, he's tall. He's very handsome. This is Barry. Um, yep, yep. Now, Barry, besides having a sweet name and being from New England, Barry is president of Biola, and he and I are leading a trip to Israel together. Uh, that we want to invite you in on. And I've never been, and so I'm fully excited. He's been uh, several times. In fact, he, he boasts repeatedly that he walked with Jesus uh, back in the day. And so, no, he's been. Um, uh, but here's the deal. If you are interested in going with us, would you email me or my assistant, Christina, and, and let us know we're going sometime in April. I'm not sure exactly of the dates. I think it's after Easter, and we're, we've got a few spots left, so we want to invite you to come. We're also going with a, a man named Kenneth Way, who's an Old Testament archaeology professor. So it's like, it's pretty loaded, uh, at least on their side. On our side, I'm just going to go, and I can't wait to float in the Dead Sea. So... Um, <laughs> It'll be glorious. So anyway, I want to invite you to that. Also, tomorrow, we're doing our first ever blue Christmas service. And, um, and the reason we're calling it a blue Christmas service is not just an excuse to sing Elvis in church, but um, some of you won't get that. But um, we, we, we also realize that when you look at certain mental health statistics, the, the suicide rate, the de- rate of depression, loneliness, I mean, they all kind of skyrocket this time of year. Because as much as, you know, we get into the tinsel and the whatever of the season, there are just as many people who are grieving, all kinds of things. And so we're actually going to have a, it's a, it's a, a lamenting service. We're actually going to sing song, songs of lament. We're going to look at a couple of psalms. We're going to have some stillness, communion. But um, it's, not, it's going to be, feel very different than what we normally do here. So if you're interested in that, that's at 7 o'clock tomorrow. We have childcare through, I think, first grade. Today we're going to look at the idea of joy. We've been looking at these themes because we're following the liturgical calendar. And so there are four weeks of Advent and they're themed. So hope was first and peace, now joy, next week love. And, and joy is an interesting thing because joy, the, the root word, the Greek word that we translate joy is related to the word that we translate grace. Joy has to do with grace or gift or giver uh, right? Grace is this beautiful word that's used in the New Testament, and, and it's the idea of just a, a gift um, with no strings attached. And so joy is related to gift and giver and giving. Um, and, and joy certainly does not characterize most of us, uh, most of our lives, because joy is different than happiness. Happiness is a momentary kind of uh, sense of, of pleasure and enjoyment over favorable circumstances. So I get, I get a good... Uh, Report card, I get a raise at work, I meet my sales goal, I whatever. And, and, and happiness is legit and it's a gift of God, but joy is deeper. Joy is a state of being. You can be joyful and be sad. You can be joyful and be suffering. You can jo- be joyful and go through hardships and tribulations. And joy characterizes God. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. It's for the joy set before Him that Jesus came and gave His life on the cross. So there's a sense in which... Joy, the American culture isn't set up for joy. 
American culture bows down at happiness. We want to look at something far better and truer and deeper. So Genesis chapter 12. We meet a man here named Abram. Abram drops into this story. He drops into a genealogy right before this. We know nothing about the guy except that he receives in verse 1 this call from God. The Lord said to Abram, we know him as Abraham, go from your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. All right, so we don't have any idea why this guy's getting this incredible promise. I will make your name great and you will be a what? Blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed. And then what's the word? Through you. Now that is the key to understanding the promise. That God, for whatever reason, was looking for conduits. He was looking for funnels. He was looking for somebody that he could bless and that the blessing wouldn't stop with them, but it would be passed on. So he takes a guy, Abram, who was childless and says, a great nation will come from you. And through that nation will come blessing to the generation. So blessed to be a blessing is kind of the idea. You receive from God that isn't just for you, it's instrumental. You're a conduit that passes through and goes on to others. Now this test, this, this idea of blessed to be a blessing is all throughout the scriptures. Go if you would to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The idea that, that what we receive from God, we literally are to just pass on. Deuteronomy 24. Let's go to verse uh, 17. Notice this command, Deuteronomy 24, 17. This is Moses speaking to the second generation of Israelites out of uh, their slavery in Egypt. And he says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Why? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Now the the analogy is, hey, you were once orphaned, fatherless, and widowed when you were in Egypt. So, do not deprive the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow of justice. Right? So what God did for you, in other words, Israel, you are to do for others. Now, he gives a very specific example of how this is to work. It's called the law of gleaning. Many of you are familiar with it. Verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field, and we can all relate to this moment, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees. We just got done doing that, probably. Do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over them again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Now, there's not an immediate connection between, okay, we're slaves and take care of the the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow by leaving stuff on the edges of your field. But what God is communicating to them in this practice is, listen, what you received was grace. Now don't deprive others of that grace. What you've received is blessing. Now don't deprive others of blessing. So I redeemed you. There was nothing special about Israel. And God says this all throughout Deuteronomy. It wasn't because you were awesome. It wasn't because you were numerous. It wasn't because you were a military or religious superpower. I was just keeping a promise I made to Abram. That's why I redeemed you. 
Now you pass along the blessings you've received from me. And one of the ways you would do this, and I would imagine people would feel about that practice the same way you and I feel about giving up our paycheck. The foreigner and the widow, they weren't beating my vines. No, olive trees. Right? They didn't do anything to cultivate this, this land. They didn't, they didn't sow this. They didn't plant this. Why would I have to leave it? But the command was, all right, if you're traveling along and stuff falls from your wagon, leave it there. You're traveling along and you just can't quite reach that batch of olives, leave them there. If you're traveling along and you don't get every grape, leave them there. Why? To remind you that what you have is all a gift. Therefore, who are you? to restrict blessing from others. Now this practice is all over the place. Go if you would to Deuteronomy 26. This same idea of being conduits or funnels of blessing. Chapter 26, verse 1. Now Moses is talking to Israel outside of the promised land. And one of his big fears of when the children of Israel get to the promised land is that they will forget that it's all grace. They'll think they, they worked hard for it. They'll, they'll think they earned it or deserved it. When you've entered the promised land, the Lord your God is giving you his inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil. So this is the earliest part of the harvest, typically the best part of the harvest. Take some of that and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. So that's the tabernacle or temple, ultimately. And say to the priest. Now this whole next section is what you're to say as you're handing your basket over. Are you ready? I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come into the land the Lord swore to give to our ancestors. In other words, I acknowledge God kept his promise. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar. Then you shall say, and this is part two, my father was a wandering Aramean. Which I always want to add, prepare to die. You know, uh, out of Princess Bride, if you've ever, if you're following. You, my name is Diego Montoya. Okay, okay. You just... My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. You're supposed to say all this. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice, saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. That was the big thing you were supposed to say. So the first thing you would say is, I acknowledge God kept his promise in bringing me here. And then the second thing you were to say is you were to recite the story of Israel. That Israel was once few in number and now it was numerous. They were once in slavery and now they're free. And that you personally stand as a free, blessed individual before God and hand him your basket. Now why would you do that? It's the same reason you would leave parts around your field, right? It's the reminder that it's all grace. The crop, the land, that was never yours. That was mine. See, really, really all presenting God with the first fruits was, it wasn't like you were giving God what was yours. It was just giving God back what was his. 
And it's reminding you that all that you have is a gift. Would you agree? See, joy is related to gift, which is related to giving, which is related to giver. Why is it that parents, and I'm guilty, why is it that we cannot help but buy our children things that we know a year from now will wind up in the giveaway truck at Christmas cleanout? Why, why do we do that? We can't help it. I mean, there's something about seeing our children open presents. There's something about buying my wife something. There's something about, see, I think we are built to be generous. We're built for generosity. We're built for kindness and thoughtfulness. We're built for this. This is the way God intended us to be. The natural expression of love for neighbor and love for God is that none of us would claim or clutch. We'd be conduits and funnels. That's the idea. But so much of American culture wars against that. Would you agree? So some estimate we're now bombarded 30,000 times by commercial images and brands a day. A day! was 3,000 10 years ago. So that does something to people, wouldn't you agree? So when we talk about joy, I can't help but go to what quenches it. Because those moments when I've experienced great joy, it's either because God used me to do something and he gets the credit, used me to give something and he gets the credit. Those moments of the most intense joy I've ever been a part of were the moments when I realized I was deserving of nothing and everything was a gift. So why is joy in such short supply? Well, go to Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 13. We just looked at Luke's version of this parable. And so... Far be it from us to repeat ourselves. So we'll go to Matthew's version. That was sarcasm because we repeat a lot. So Jesus here is telling a parable about a sower sowing seed. Verse 3, Matthew 13. A farmer went out to plant seed, to sow seed. You literally sprinkle it. As he was scattering the seed, and he's going to mention four kinds of soil that encounter the seed. As he was scattering the seed, some of the seed fell along the path. It was hardened. Birds came and ate it up, so it didn't grow. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, it didn't grow. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Verse 7, other seed, the third kind of seed, fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, as we saw in Luke, Jesus explains what this means. Go to verse 22 of the same chapter. And then he talks about the third kind of seed. I just want to camp here just for a little bit. He says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth do what? choke it, making it unfruitful. So, the analogy Jesus is making is this. Hey, in an agrarian society, we all know how farmers sow seed. And we know that the condition of the soil affects how the seeds receive. So, for some, there's hardness and the seed just bounces right off. For some, there's shallowness and the seed never takes root. But for others, it takes root, but it's choked. And Jesus identifies, interestingly enough, two things that choke it. Number one, The worries of this life. Now, the word worry is the word meris, and it means to be scattered or fragmented. 
Now think about this. When you're worried about something, you're in this moment in time, but you're actually thinking about that moment coming up, right? Or you're replaying that moment back here, right? So you're scattered. You're here in this moment, but you're actually partially somewhere else, right? Or or have you ever been in in a conversation with somebody and you're kind of chewing on something? You're here looking at them. I'm talking to Ken, but I'm actually thinking, I know, but I'm actually thinking about something over here. Can any of you relate to that? That's what the word worry means. To be fragmented, to be scattered. I'm here, but I'm actually all over the place. So, Jesus identifies the worries of this life. And how many are those? Legion. Right? There is always something new to be scared of. I mean, literally, just, just take seven days and go to the headlines of CNN.com or whatever and just write down all the things to be afraid of. You come up with a big list. Google the phrase fear-based advertising. There's, our culture thrives on this stuff. Now, Jesus identifies the worries of this life, and then he talks about also the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you think those two things are related? Yes. Why? Because what's wealth supposed to do? Take care of my worries. Right? So, he's, Jesus, if you don't know, is a genius. And he knows this. And, and so... When he identifies what chokes fruitfulness in the kingdom, he does this one-two punch of the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, why does he say wealth is deceitful? Because it promises to take away worry, but it actually increases it. Because it's like, uh, man, who is it? Uh, Notorious B.I.G. said. (laughs) More money, more problems. Tweet that. Now, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, but, but there's something to that. The, the lie of wealth is that it will take away worry. But what happens is the nicer stuff you get, the more you have to spend time and worry on the stuff. Right? I think, like, I leased this beautiful blue... F-150. My wife found it online. It actually turned out to be a misprint. It was like 169 bucks a month for a two-year lease. And we were like, in. Nicest thing I've ever driven. But when I'm with my kids, don't touch. Don't put your feet up. Don't spill anything. No, you can't eat. I worried where I parked it. Now, Tim Kling, I'm just calling people out all over the place. You never want me to know your name. I think it's a lesson. So Tim finds me a 2,009 mile to the gallon excursion. This thing is indestructible. So what can the kids do? The kids could camp out in there. I don't care. It's glorious. I have more freedom with my truck because it's not awesome, right, than I did when I had the awesome truck. So the thing I've learned is that the more you have, it's not like worry decreases. The lie is, hey, if I just, if I just got a Christmas bonus of $10,000, That would help. Yes, that's happiness. That's not joy, though. Because six months from now, you'll believe the exact same thing about $10,000 more, correct? So the deceitfulness of wealth is that there's a point, a magical point out there where you will say, yep, got enough. That's the deceitfulness. There ain't no point where you say you got enough. 
So Jesus is telling stories about what happens when instead of being funnels and conduits, we start clutching and grabbing and holding. And he says, if you want to know what chokes, and how about the American church? You want to know what chokes life out of the American church? Well, deceitfulness of wealth combined with the worries of this life. Go to Luke chapter 12. And we're doing this because Katie's Luke is right here. This is for you. Is he sleeping? Is he? I bet there are many people that would want to join him right now at this moment. I did not look at my wife. I did not look at her. Luke chapter 12. See, we had a fire alarm go off in the middle of 8 o'clock service. Oh, it was horrible. Right, literally right in the middle of the biggest point I was trying to make a morning. Fire alarm goes off, we have to evacuate. So I got all this pent up angst. (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, and this is, by the way, we'll mark this down as things you never want to say to Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, I don't know if he said it like that. I doubt, maybe I'm reading into it. Man, I don't know. Who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you and your brother? And then he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, which means I guess there are several kinds. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, is that a word for Orange County, California, or what? And the word life is really interesting. There are two Greek words for life. One of them, bios, means physical, biological life. The other one, zoe, which is the one Jesus uses here, means the life that's really life. The life that's joyful, the life that's peaceful, the life that God intends for you to have. That life isn't found in an abundance of stuff. And then he tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, according to the Old Testament texts and like hundreds of others, what would the man with an abundance, what was he supposed to do with it? Funnel it, baby. It wasn't his to begin with. He did nothing to get it. He's a conduit. He's blessed to be a blessing, right? Leave some on the edges. Take a big old basket and say, my father was a wandering airman, right? That's what he's supposed to do. But instead, he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. And the word fool here, if we had time, is an epic word. It's a word that's the denial of Zoe. It it means if you want to lose your life, this is the way to do it. You fool, this very night, your life will be, what's it say? demanded from you. Now, the word demanded is a legal word. It's the word an owner of something would use if someone else borrowed something to call it back. So what does God say to this fool? Your life was never yours, and now I'm calling it back. Whew! This is the only story I found where somebody does something so bad, right? Where Jesus tells a story about somebody doing something so bad, like literally that night their life's demanded of them. He says, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. 
I hate talking about money. I hate it. When Bob's up here talking, I hate it. I mean, he, I love him. I mean, and I love the announcement, but I hate it. Because church has such a gnarly reputation about money, and I hate the big hair and send your seed money in and the health and wealth garbage. I hate it all. So I'd rather not talk about it, except that Jesus talks about it more than anything else except the kingdom of God. More than heaven, hell, prayer, this is what he talks about. One third of his parables are about this. And he doesn't give us a lot of room. And it seems like, and this just could be me, maybe I'm projecting onto you, it seems like the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life, the storing up of abundance, seems like it's potentially relevant for us. And so I'm sitting there looking at a topic about joy, and I'm thinking, when were the times I was most joyful? It's when I wasn't entitled. It's when I wasn't grabbing a hold. It's when I was just a funnel. And I think, oh, yeah, that's right. That's why I will buy our kids stuff, which is totally teaching them the wrong thing, but yet I can't help it because I want to see them open things. Right? So I'm going to honor the baby Jesus by spending money for kids that have too much stuff. I know how insane it is. (laughs) But the story that Jesus tells here is if you want to know Zoe kind of life, then do the opposite of what this guy did. And what does that mean? Go, if you would, to 1 Timothy. One last passage. Oh, i got to start flying, brothers and sisters. See, I was pent up from the first service, and I just, just yapping. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I hate these verses. So here they come. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Bless you, bless you all. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Until you open my fridge and realize, oh, I've got far more than I could eat in my closet. Even my closet has far more than I can wear. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 17, this is the part. Command those who are rich in this present world. Command those who are rich in this present world. How many of you, when you hear that, think of somebody else? Your Belinda, that's who I think of living in Placentia. <laughs> we rented in your Belinda. It was no, it was all right. It was we felt we felt really good about ourselves for a year. Now <laughs> what what I want to do is is real quick, I do this every year, but I just wanna I wanna show you that you're rich. Now, there are some people in our church that are genuinely, deeply struggling to pay their bills. I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying this to the 80% of folks in this room that have plenty. And, and the fact that we don't feel rich shows how demonic the whole system turns out to be. All right? Even if you're a high school kid or a college kid, by global standards. All right? So let me just... The, the goal of these statistics, because you can manipulate statistics, the goal of these is to, to cultivate gratitude, not guilt. So fire them up. So if you've got drinking water 
put you over a, a, a billion folks who don't. 93% of the world's population doesn't own a car. So if you drove here, welcome. Almost half our world lives on $2.50 a day or less. 80% of the world lives on $10 a day or less. If you've got electricity, this one always strikes me. The top 20% of the world's population consumes 86% of its goods. Now, now, I don't know if these are accurate. There's this thing called the global rich list, and you can type in your salary, and it places you into different levels. And I don't know if it takes into account that it's much more expensive to live here than it is in Rwanda. I have no idea. But just, would you play with me for one second, and let's assume these are right. Let's just assume it for sake of argument. All right? If you make $2,500 a year, in global terms, you're in the top 15% of wealth. $10,000, top 13%. $20,000, top 11%. $40,000, top 3%. 50, top 1%. 80.66% richest. In fact, the top 10% of people, approximately $25,000 a year, hold 87% of the world's wealth. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking, well... That's not apples to apples, right? I mean, here we're in Southern California. Da, 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 da. I get it, I get it, I get it. I get it, all of it. And statistics, who, who studies them, right? I mean, I don't know who makes this stuff. I mean, you just go. But let's say for a moment, like we were talking around the dinner table last night. We do this thing called the 12 Days of Christmas where we read the Christmas story, they get a gift, we play together as a family. Just, we love it. And we were talking about whether or not the Erie family was rich, and what is the unequivocal, universal, absolute, God-honoring answer? Yes! But then you ask us, do we feel rich? And the answer is, no! And we sit and we think that just a little more would make a difference. And I think God in those moments, He brings back to mind this passage I just want to welcome you to the club okay some of you are genuinely struggling I'm not saying you're not but to the rest of you welcome welcome you're rich you're rich by global standards you are rich if you've ever upgraded a phone not because you needed one because you could upgrade you're rich if you've ever complained about lack of air conditioning you're rich okay if you've ever run out of wrapping paper to wrap all the gifts you're giving you're rich it's just true Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Oh, I love that. So he doesn't say, command them not to be rich. The Bible never says that, ever. It's to be rich well. That's the command. Do you understand that? The opposite of greed isn't poverty. It's generosity. It's to embrace leaving some on the edges of your field. It's to embrace, my father was a wandering Aramean. It's to embrace that I'm a conduit and I don't actually own much of anything. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, I love the play on this word, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
Command them, the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. There you go. And then, oh, I forgot like the best part. In verse 19, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming life so that they may take hold of what? The life that is really life. This is Zoe, brothers and sisters. So Paul says, hey, rich people, which is most of us, be generous and willing to share so that you may grab a hold of the life that's really life. That's it. The the times I'm most in touch with joy are those times when I realize it's been all grace to me. How can it not be all grace to everybody else? That is what we're fighting for in having this conversation. Because, and we say it all the time, listen, does God need our money? No, no, not even remotely. In fact, there's a great psalm when God says to the nation of Israel, hey, just so we're clear, I own cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, like your sacrifices, they're not for me. Does the church need the money? Well, in a sense, yes. In a sense, no. In a sense, yes. I mean, Bob, what Bob said was absolutely true. The money here funds mission, funds people, funds facilities, funds ministry, sure. But you know what? All of that could go away tomorrow and the church of Jesus would still be fine. Would you agree? If we sold all this stuff, if I went back to modeling, we'd be just <laughs> fine. It's fine. So the question then becomes, why worry about generosity? Paul says it. So that you would take hold of the life that is really life. So that God wouldn't look at you and say, you fool. Your zoe does not consist in an abundance of stuff. That you and I would learn that godliness with contentment is what matters most. And that we would be less worried, less fearful, and more joyful. So, you got, a couple, you got some work to do. What's this? Offering basket. Now, we pass these around every week. And the reason we pass them around is because it tangibly, as a community, wages war against the deceitfulness of wealth. All right, so that's part of the reason. But this ties in nicely to the idea that as you hand a basket to the high priest, you recite to yourself, my father was a wandering Aramean. Now, your fathers were not wandering Arameans. I think we can be pretty sure. But here's what I'd like for you to do. Don't do this yet, but you have a note card. What would you write in the place of my father was a wandering Aramean and God rescued us from Egypt? So what I'd love to do is I'd love for us to actually write just one sentence and offer it as that goes by. In other words, as we touch a basket, whether you put anything in it is irrelevant. But I want you to write, what did God save you from? What did you used to be, but now you are? Could you get back, just for a moment, could you get back in touch 
For my father was a wandering Aramean and God rescued us from Egypt. Like for me, I graduated college and I was an investment banker and money dominated my life. So God has set me free from that way of living. Or I've tasted the life that is really life when my family and I have done X or Y or Z. So can, can you just take a moment and fill that out? So what we're going to do is we're going to kick the drum just to get it started. And then we're going to give you, we're just going to give you a song. And again, you don't have to do this, but this is, this is a way. Now listen, listen, listen. This is some of the most important offering you will do. The reminder that it's all a gift to you. The reminder that it's all His. The reminder, here's what you've done. We are a people that are driven by discontent. And to be reminded of His grace, guys, this is some of the most important work we can do in our world. To just sit and to think, I once was this, and now I'm this. To just reflect. So everybody do this. And then after this one song's over, then we'll call the offering team forward. And would you put these in there as a way, and even if you want to hold the basket for a second and just say, Father, I once was this. Thank you that that's no longer true. All right? Can we do this together as a way of saying thanks? So let me pray for us, and then we'll participate together. Father, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Father, I once was numb and dead to your kingdom, and now I feel alive. Father, I've tasted this life that is really life. And so I pray for grace to taste more. I pray, Father, that you would awaken in me an overflowing awareness of the abundance that you've provided and that you would pry my hands open to bless. So, Father, do work in us. Do work in us to bring honor and glory to your name. Amen.